Welcome to the Automation Unplugged podcast, the podcast for technology professionals featuring leading industry personalities. I'm your host, Ron Callis. show, we will discuss cryptocurrencies and thus need to read you a disclaimer. The information on this show, Automation Unplugged, is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information contained in or provided from or through this video stream or podcast is not intended to be and does not constitute financial advice, investment advice, trading advice, or frankly, any advice. The information provided during this show and on our website is generally in nature and is not specific to you, the user, or anyone else. You should not make any decision, financial investment, trading, or otherwise, based on any of the information presented on this show, on our website, without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or financial advisor. You understand that you are using any and all of the information available on or through this show and on our website at your own risk. The trading of Bitcoin's alternative cryptocurrencies has potential rewards and it also has potential risks involved. Trading may not be suitable for all people, Anyone wishing to invest should seek his or her own independent financial or professional advice. Today's show features Theo Savusis, CEO of Prometheus Systems. Theo Savusis is an audio-video integrator passionate about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and sharing his knowledge of cryptocurrency. Theo graduated with a bachelor's degree in business and then went on to pursue his master's in computer science. In 1997, he founded Prometheus Systems, an AV integration company that specializes in high-end residential projects. While Prometheus Systems is based in the Bahamas, Theo has completed projects throughout the Caribbean and throughout North and South America. After reading Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper, an informational guide about Bitcoin in 2011, Theo became interested in Bitcoin. Today, Theo is a crypto investor and active speaker and educator, having led numerous talks on the future of cryptocurrencies. We live streamed this interview on social media on Wednesday, November 10th, 2021 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. During our time together, we discussed what is Bitcoin and how does it work? How Bitcoin promotes the development of renewable energy sources, centralized versus decentralized blockchains, and the future of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do as well. Let's tune into the interview with Theo Sabusis. Theo, how are you, sir? I'm great, Ron. How are you doing? I am good. Uh, I I have a special image here. Let me go to this view and I'm going to bring this in. Uh, There we go. There you are, Theo. (laughs) You were visiting my Cedia booth, Firefly Design Group, back in September of 2009. That would have been two years after I launched the business. Do you, do you remember uh, that? I certainly do. That was a long time ago. 
That was, and there's me. I'm not sure why I have the medical gloves, but uh, I've got medical gloves going on there. I don't know. I was <laughs> doing something there. Uh, so Theo, first of all, where are you coming to us from? Well, I'm in the Bahamas. I'm, um, I'm in my house and, uh, I'm enjoying a beautiful, sunny, warm day here in the Bahamas in Nassau. That wouldn't have anything to do with Bitcoin and Ethereum reaching all-time highs in the last hour, would it? <laughs> that is just a wonderful coincidence. That I could sit here and speak with you and your audience about cryptocurrencies as the market hits all-time highs. The coincidence, you and I have been talking for years about crypto and we've stayed in touch on that subject and here you are on our show live what are the odds absolutely awesome it's pretty amazing really awesome. all right uh prometheus systems what is prometheus systems where do you guys do work what type of projects do you guys do well um we first of all you know i got started way back like uh 1997 is when I f first convinced someone to buy an automation system from me. Um, and we focus on really high-end residential. And so, you know, it's uh, gated communities. The average size house is like, well, I mean, for uh, many of you guys, this is no big deal, but... Uh, um, the average size house is maybe 15,000 square feet. Um, I'm doing a house right now that's uh, 40,000 square feet. So really uh, focus on upscale residential. Upscale, re do you primarily, uh, have you stayed focused in the Bahamas or do you work throughout the Caribbean? Or where, where's your, when you've done, and I know you've been doing these projects for you know, like you said, since the late 90s, where do you primarily do the work? Primarily, the work is right here in Nassau, but I have projects on the islands, including small boutique hotels that we've done. Um, and I've done projects as far south as uh, Chile and as far north as Montreal. Um, haven't done anything in Europe, but I've done a few, I've done a, a number of projects in the Caribbean itself. Can you take us back in time? How did you get into the integration space? <laughs> okay, so um, my background is technical. Uh, I also have a degree in in business, but um, I was in, I had a company back in 95, or well, I was a partner in the company where we put up satellite dishes. And um, uh, in, you know, in the early days, uh, it was the big, the big dishes before DirecTV came up. But we were putting in this, uh, um, this big dish at uh, the, some huge house. And this was in 95. And I walked in 
And there were these guys from L.A., and they were putting keypads in the walls and, and uh, doing a, a home theater. And so I said, guys, what are you doing? And they said, well, this is, we're doing home automation. This is a lighting control system. We've got audio everywhere, video everywhere, and home theater. And I looked at it, and it was as if um, a light came on. I, I said, this is what I'm doing next. Would that have been and, a Lutron system? Um, to be honest with you, it wasn't. I think it was Vantage. A Vantage system. Yeah, it was Vantage they were putting in. It wasn't Lutron. So, yeah, that's why actually I, I went and, and um, I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything. I just went and got trained at Vantage and I started selling Vantage systems for, I think, like the first five or six projects I did were Vantage. And then, then I switched over to Lutron. Everything else has been Lutron ever since. Got it. And how has your business evolved over those 25 years? Um, I mean, it's been, it's been really good in terms of getting larger and larger projects, um, and, uh, getting to the, you know, getting to the point where it becomes really straightforward. Uh, there isn't, you know, there's not really, uh, much in terms of, of challenge anymore with, with putting in systems. And, you know, I've, I've, I've come to the point where I'm, um, I'm thinking of, uh, moving on. Yeah. We're going to get to that. Uh, what, what led to you deciding to, to be generous back in 2007 and lend me money to start Firefly design group? What, what were you thinking? Well, I thought you were nuts, but (laughs) (laughs) you're definitely right there. (laughs) But I also thought if anyone can do this, it's Ron because he doesn't quit. And so I thought, um, I was like 99% sure at the very least you'd pay me back with interest. So I wasn't worried about it. Um, I wasn't, uh, sure about your long-term, uh, uh, viability, but, uh, I thought for sure you would give it, uh, your best go. And so I, I had no, no problem, uh, extending you that loan. What was it memorable for you when I did finally pay you back? I don't remember what year that was. I don't, I, I don't recall how many years it took. Do you, does that stick with you? Do you remember when that happened or was it too little to, to be memorable? Um, no, I remember it because I, you know, it registered in my mind as by damn, uh, you know, Ron did it, he paid me back, which is what I fully expected. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, it might have been 2010, but I'd, I'd have to check that. I'm not sure. Yeah, that could be right. That could be right. Yeah. So to bring us to the, uh, I'm not going to say the present, but it, what I recall is uh, maybe in 2016, and you give us your, your background. When did you hear about Bitcoin? Because I, what I think I know is that in 16, you made an investment. Were you involved in it before then? 
Oh yeah. Oh, you were. All right. T- tell us the when, when did you hear? When did you have the twinkle in your eye of this this white paper on this thing called Bitcoin? So I came across um, Bitcoin in the form of uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper in 2011. Yep, 2011. Okay. And so I decided hey, this looks like at the very least is going to be fun. So I built a rig um, with um, big graphics cards and big AMDs uh, at the time and started mining Bitcoin in June of 2011. And... What the podcast um, doesn't, audience doesn't, here is my jaw dropped. I'm picking it up off the table that you were mining in June of 11. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bitcoin was two bucks at the time. And so um, I started mining it, but I had a problem. And the problem was that, I mean, the, uh, the Bitcoin algorithm is so uh, GPU intensive that you could fry eggs on these graphics cards. So they would uh, constantly shut down in an air-conditioned room. And so my, my brothers, um, they own the, the Wendy's uh, franchise here in the Bahamas, and they've got big walk-in uh, coolers. And so I asked them if I could move my mining operation into one of their coolers and i plugged it in and it ran for a year and a half and so i was mining bitcoin for uh a year and a half before i calculated that the um computer i was running would not be able to mine another bitcoin even if I let it run to the end of time, simply because the uh, size of the Bitcoin mining network had become so large, my contribution um, was so minuscule a year and a half into it that I'd never mine another Bitcoin. So I shut it down. Your hashing power was not adequate to mine a Bitcoin. Correct. And, And just so everybody knows, um, a hash is one iteration through the Bitcoin algorithm. So the Bitcoin algorithm is about 1,500 instructions. So one hash is fi- the 1,500 uh, instructions that executes one round of looking for the answer within the Bitcoin mining network. So yeah, my hash power w- was no longer uh, high enough for me to, uh, to get anywhere. I shut it down. Uh, so we're going to come back to this idea that you were mining in 11, which I, that is astounding. I see Taylor here. Taylor is, uh, our VP of operations and finance. And his answer is simply, wow. <laughs> That's, uh, you're, you're definitely an OG if you're mining in 11, but let, for our audience, we have a lot of newbies for sure. Listening. What is, what is a Bitcoin? Yeah, so um, Bitcoin is uh, a very interesting concept. 
it is really the very first time that we've had a form of money that's not issued by a king or an emperor or a government or some central bank, some central authority. It is a democratized way of uh, creating and issuing money, at the very least. It is also, because it's electronic, um, what is popularly called the internet of money. And so it's, it's very interesting that it exists on a ledger called a blockchain that um, exists on all computers that are running the uh, Bitcoin mining algorithm um, if they're actively participating in, in, um, in, in Bitcoin mining or uh, just a node that verifies, um, verifies transactions uh, more in a participatory way uh, rather than being a full, uh, a full mining network. And so you can run um, a verification node with a lot less horsepower than if, than someone who is actually mining. So uh, I, there's a, a hip term, and I'm going to come back to Bitcoin, and I'm going to jump into mining of Bitcoin and get an explanation. But I think there could be an opportunity here to teach, and uh, I'm going to allow you, I'm going to empower you to do that. And that is, a Bitcoin is fungible, meaning that a Bitcoin, uh, you can give me a Bitcoin, I can take your Bitcoin, you can give me, uh, we can exchange Bitcoins, and we have equal value of a Bitcoin. And so that's a, a fungible token. And there's something called a non-fungible token. And it's all the rage. People are seeing it on CNBC and it's being talked about across the internet. And this thing called an NFT, a non-fungible token. Can you maybe use uh, Bitcoin and as the foundation and then how is an NFT different and, and where maybe is it applied today and where might it be applied in the future? Yeah, so um, fungibility is um, the nature of money. One dollar is the same as another dollar. This was actually challenged, and I don't remember what date it was, but it was, I don't know, uh, some time ago, but it was challenged in, in the U.S. courts because um, a certain person had copied the serial numbers of the bills, the dollar bills they had in their possession. I don't know what possessed them to do that, but they were robbed. And um, the, the thief actually spent that money um, in some stores or whatever it was. And what happened was that this individual took the store to court to try and get his dollars back because he could prove from the serial number that they were his. And the court ruled against him because they said the dollar is fungible. It doesn't matter um, as long as 
the person who ends up with the dollar has not broken the law in any way, um, that, that money is equivalent to any other dollar. And so one dollar is the same as another. And that was uh, shown in law. Similarly, one Bitcoin is the same as another. Not entirely, but, you know, uh, that's the idea. So now that's fungibility, where one is equivalent to the other. Um, Non-fungibility is where one token, whatever that is, is different from another token that, um, that they represent two different things. And so, uh, non-fungible tokens, uh, don't exist directly on the Bitcoin network, but on other networks that support what are called layer two solutions, which are programs that run on top of the foundation layer. Um, they have uh, minted uh, non-fungible tokens that represent art, music, real estate. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. the The artistic side of it um, is is such that you can program a smart contract. I mean, and you you can you've seen. NFTs explode recently. Everyone's getting into them. And, and, and they have, uh, the reason that they're valuable is you can prove that you own it because you have a private key that nobody else has that proves uh, your ownership. You can publish a message on, uh, that NFT that shows, uh, you own it, um, and you could not sell it unless you had that private key. So you would transfer ownership from you to another person. Now, the thing is that um, NFTs are really just smart contracts that um, can be bought, sold, whatever you wish. But what's interesting about them is that Say you're an artist, you can program uh, an NFT with an image that you've created that people love and are willing to pay for, and someone buys it. But in the programming, baked right in, into, the, into the smart contract, anytime that that NFT changes hands, anytime it's sold, you can program it so that 10% or whatever percentage you decide is transferred to you of the sale price as the artist, as the original artist. And so you make money in perpetuity every time that art piece changes hands. Uh, and so, so, yeah. I was going to go, I, I'm, I'm old enough to, to have experienced in the mid-90s the invention of a music um, uh, compression technology called MP3. Yeah. And things like Napster were born and the transmission of music 
around the I, I remember because we me and my dorm buddies would head over across campus at Virginia Tech to the one kid on campus that had a CD, a DVD, it was a CD burner. And we would pay him a handsome ransom to burn our music onto the CD. It was like $50 a CD so that we could have this portable music. And the, what it meant ultimately was that the artists were not getting paid because people weren't necessarily going to the store and buying the DVD or the CD for that artist. And it caused a lot of, of destruction to the music industry, as an example. And mm -hmm. these new technologies, and tell me if this is correct or your version of this, and we'll, uh, we're going to back, we'll, we'll get back into smart contracts and thus Ethereum. But mm -hmm. smart contracts and NFTs actually change the game entirely. Do you, do you agree correct. with that? That kind of looking forward, what it means for artists around the world? Absolutely. Um, the, the important thing is that a lot of artists not getting um, royalties uh, either to, due to piracy or because of um, the middleman taking such a large cut. The, 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 inter industry. the intermediaries, all the, the dealers and brokers and, and people right. that are getting their pockets lined. Exactly. And so the problem was that uh, in the past, I mean, you couldn't, um, you couldn't sell, say, um, uh, a listen, a single listen to um, a, a piece of music, to a song. Um, for say five cents or a dime, because any payment system that you tried to process that through, uh, it would cost at least a quarter to run that transaction. And um, this is Visa and, and others. And so there's no way to run uh, such a small transaction without it, you know, without it costing so much. And so this um, NFT blockchain technology makes it possible to sell uh, a single listen um, to a particular song for five cents because it now costs a fraction of a penny for that transaction to take place. What happens is when we start doing blockchain transactions, you get... Uh, uh, no friction and extremely low costs. I, I, I seem to remember, I'm trying to get the number right. It was, I can't, this was a few days ago. I think it was something like, um, $1.3 billion of Bitcoin was moved for 81 cents. That's what it costs to, to send $1.3 billion. Go try do that at a bank and see what they charge. Well, so the, this is, uh, let's go there. Let's, let's talk about that. And, and the idea that uh, it's, it's in the news uh, for several months now that the country of El Salvador has made Bitcoin um, a, a currency in the country. And right. they did that 
because of the cost of remittances and the remittance industry. Can you go maybe for our audience and describe kind of the, the, the realities if you're an El Salvadorian and you have family in the U.S. and how the, the previous or the status quo remittance industry works? And this is global, but we'll use El Salvador as an example and why Bitcoin changes the game entirely. Sure. It is um, a well-known fact that banks exhibit what is called rent-seeking behavior. They sit there and just suck a little bit of each transaction that comes their way. And this happens from when the money is passed from one institution to the next institution to the next before it gets to the final uh, recipient. And so you've got this chain of parasites sitting there just uh, taking money off your transaction because they can. And that is coming to an end. And this is where uh, banks are actually. Uh, terrified because they see the beginning of the end of their uh, model of doing business. Sitting there with a straw sucking as money goes by is no longer a business model. So you better go find something else to do because your business model is out the window and down the toilet. And so what happened in El Salvador uh, is that um, you can now send Bitcoin to, um, to anyone living there, uh, to their Bitcoin wallet, and um, they can spend it uh, right away. They don't even need to convert it to U.S. dollars, which is the other currency that um, El Salvador uses. And so um, there's, you know, I, I guess what I should do is really finish talking about Bitcoin a little bit. And why Please. it's, you know, why it's so powerful. And the reason it, it's, it's different is because um, anyone can participate. You don't have to ask permission. May I? Um, you want to be a Bitcoin miner, you simply download the software into your machine and you start mining. You didn't ask anyone if you could do it. Um, the, the software itself is open source. So and has been constantly audited. So we know that it does exactly what it says it does and there are no back doors. And so what is mining anyway? Well, mining is uh, a computer network that uh, is probably in the neighborhood of 10 million computers around the world or more that, um, that, that uh, processes transactions, Bitcoin transactions, every 10 minutes. So what happens is, um, a, say, 
the transactions that occurred in Bitcoin, I sent, you know, Bitcoin to you, you sent Bitcoin to somebody else, whatever. Um, all those transactions are encoded in a block, encrypted. And then all of these machines get to work trying to solve the encryption problem. And there are millions of machines and everyone's working on the problem. And this is not exact, this is not exactly the, the Bitcoin algorithm, how it works, but this is a good analogy. Imagine that you've got two very, very large prime numbers, right? The basis of the cryptography is one-way functions. What that means is you can go in one direction very easily, but it's very difficult to come back. So you take two numbers, you multiply them, you get a result. Very easy to do. Take that result and try to find which two numbers multiplied together created it. Very difficult. That's why they're called one-way functions. So imagine all of these computers all over the world get going and they're all working out what are the two primes? What are they? They're multiplying furiously one against another, the next prime, the next prime, until someone has a solution. As soon as one machine figures out the solution, they publish it. The other uh, machines, uh, that are mining, stop, and they look at the solution. If, in fact, it is correct that it might, it, 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 it is uh, uh, what, what the uh, publisher, the computer the publisher says it is, then it's accepted, put onto the blockchain, uh, added to the blockchain, and the next uh, iteration begins of finding the next block. Now, the computer that found the solution is rewarded Bitcoin, freshly minted, out of no, out of out of thin air, out of the twenty-one million that will eventually come into existence. When I was mining, the reward was fifty bitcoins every ten minutes. After four years, that was cut down to 25. After the next four years, it was cut down to 12 and a half. Now it's six and a quarter. And it will continue to have every four years for the next 120 years when the last Bitcoin will be minted in 2140. That is baked into the Bitcoin algorithm cannot be changed unless everyone agrees to change it. And that is a whole other uh, problem because um, say that, you know, uh, we would like, look, 21 million, that's not really enough. Let's, you know, let's make a billion Bitcoins instead. So, uh, I quickly rewrite the Bitcoin algorithm and I publish it and I say, hey, here's, here's a better one. Here's a better uh, algorithm because, you know, we, we get more Bitcoins this way. Well, good luck because which Bitcoin miner is going to give up this 
very powerful network where they're making money to adopt your idea of, of, of having a different algorithm. This actually happened in 2017, in August, when uh, Bitcoin Cash was born. Uh, a guy called Roger Veer uh, came up with the idea that, hey, um, Bitcoin transactions are too slow. The block size is only one megabit. And we cannot fit enough transactions. The, price, the cost of transactions is sky high. Let's create a bigger block size. Uh, and it was eight, eight megabits. Um, and uh, the software was generated. And um, basically, the, the messaging went out that August the 1st, um, 2017, whoever wants to run this new and improved version of Bitcoin, change the algorithm in your, in your machines, and off we go. And so it happened. Now, they were expecting to become the Bitcoin. They expected that most miners would switch over. As it turned out, most of them ignored um, this hard fork, as it's called, because the, the, the network went in two different directions. And so um, they ended up with 10% of the mining power. And so it is very difficult because no one controls Bitcoin. It's very difficult to get any sort of consensus. And so you have the miners, you have the developers who, you know, who make sure the code's good and uh, add any improvements or whatever we're gonna do. And you have the users. Um, and so there's all of these uh, entities all vying for influence uh, over uh, the Bitcoin algorithm and what we're, what we're going to do with Bitcoin next. It, it's like a restaurant that uh, nobody owns. You've got chefs, you've got the owners, the managers, you've got the, the clients. And so, you know, the, the clients say, well, you know, I'd like to see uh, more vegetarian uh, offerings. And the you know, the chefs say, nah, I don't think so. And they just, you know, they just keep cooking what they're cooking. You know, uh, the managers may make uh, a suggestion to the chefs, to, you know, please accommodate the, the, the clients, but the miners do what they want to do. And so um, no one is in charge of Bitcoin. This thing runs of its own accord. Can the United it States government shut down Bitcoin? So this was um, a concern of mine. Uh, one year ago at Christmas, I was in Montreal. I was visiting my kids. And uh, I had this dream. And it was a terrible dream. Um, the dream was that Bitcoin was on fire. And it wasn't the, the you know, that. Uh, like a rocket taking off. It was in flames. It was burning. And I thought, shit, um, can, you know, can Bitcoin be destroyed? So I did, I couldn't sleep. I got up and I started researching. And, um, in the next, by the next day, I had written a paper on it. 
Um, and so it turns out that the answer is no. And here's why. The size of um, Amazon's AWS, Microsoft's Azure Cloud, Google Cloud, all of those put together. Now, bear in mind, these clouds are general purpose computers. They compute anything. Whereas Bitcoin miners are what are called ASIC machines, application-specific integrated circuits. The actual Bitcoin algorithm is baked right into the chips. That makes the machine 50 times faster than uh, uh, a machine that has to read and write to hard drive. Um, and so what happens is you get uh, a much faster uh, computational power if you're using ASIC machines. And that's the only way you can mine Bitcoin. Anything else would be too slow. And so if you put the entire computational power of all of this cloud services, it actually does not even come to 1% of the computing power of the Bitcoin mining network. That's how big this monster is. You cannot stop it. It is too huge. That is why it consumes so much electricity. Now, is because that bad for the planet? You, there's people out there hating on Bitcoin. They say it uses too much electricity. Um, the answer is no. And I'll tell you why. First of all, this is um, largely uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD, that is created by, uh, you know, uh, those who would not wish to see Bitcoin succeed. If we really look at Bitcoin mining and where Bitcoin miners are placed, what you start to see is that the majority of them, in fact, about 75% at last count, are drawing their power from renewable sources. Why? Because it's cheaper. It's cheaper to do that than. Uh, and most Bitcoin miners are right next door to the power plant, whether it's hydro, whether it's solar, whatever. They are right next door because you it costs more money to send electricity further because you lose electricity along the way. And so being right at the source is where you're going to get your cheapest electricity. And then on top of that, uh, a lot of... Uh, solar fields when they're created, a lot of hydro um, isn't used at full capacity. There's a lot of spare electricity. They pump that, that right into the ground, right? Typically goes exactly, unused. Exactly. It goes unused. And so Bitcoin is actually uh, promoting the development of renewable energy sources because we now have a 24-7 need for this power. And so it makes sustainable energy sustainable economically. We, we have some questions coming in, but I, I only because I referenced it earlier in the show. Can you help the audience understand what is Ethereum as it relates to, you know, maybe compare and contrast to Bitcoin? Yeah. Okay. So there was this 16-year-old 
called Vitalik Buterin. He's a smart little kid. And it was, I think, 2014. He went to the Bitcoin core developers and he said, hey, I have an idea. I want to create a layer two solution, a platform that runs on top of Bitcoin. Um, can we do that? And, you know, this is equivalent to me or you going to Visa and saying, hey, I have this great idea for a payment system that would run on top of Visa. Can, <laughs> can, I, can I do that? And they, they will, you know, laugh at you and, and throw you out the door, which is exactly what happened to Vitalik. They threw him out. They said, get, get out of here, kid. And so he said, okay, I'll, I'll write my own platform. And so um, he got together with a guy called uh, Gavin Woods, Dr. Gavin Woods, and uh, another guy called Charles Hodgkinson. And the three of them formed uh, Ethereum. And Gavin Woods actually wrote Solidity, which is the language of smart contracts that run on the Ethereum blockchain. And this became like a world computer. You could now program money. And, this, and thus, smart contracts were born, where, that were fully funded and um, with multi-signatures, the funds would go wherever they're supposed to go. And they were uh, self-executing and non-stoppable. There was no way you can shut down a smart contract until it finishes until it executes and then it, it stops. And so this opened the door for um, creating a uh, contracts that didn't require lawyers. This opened the door for contracts that could not be stopped, that you, you couldn't, um, you know, you, you couldn't um, uh, renege on. And, this also created the possibility of a concept called a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization. Now, this is an organization that has no people, none. It runs entirely on machine code. And you'd say like, okay, well, what's an example of that? I mean, one possible example is rideshare with electric cars that are um, self-driving. And so you can create a corporation, a DAO, and you, uh, you know, it buys a uh, hundred uh, electric cars that just drive around the city all day, accepting rides uh, with their app, knowing where to go to get recharged, knowing where to go to get repaired. and not a person involved. It just creates money. And this has begun. Uh, DAOs are now legal in, in Ontario and Canada. And I'm not sure where else they, they, they have passed as legal entities, but um, this is the future. Uh, totally uh, decentralized, uh, autonomous organizations. And, and listen, they are decentralized. That means the blockchain itself is 
uh, decentralized. No one controls it. No one can stop it. All these computers are running. As long as the network keeps going, you cannot shut it down. You cannot serve a cease and desist um, order to, uh, to a DAO. It, it continues. And so um, it's very interesting, the implications. And on, on top of that, we have completely uh, decentralized finance is huge. This is going to be the, the, the absolutely biggest thing ever to come um, in, into our world. Decentralized finance allows us to do um, lending. There are, there are things called flash loans, which are uh, fascinating constructs. Never existed before. Most of what's coming out in DeFi does not and cannot exist in the traditional finance space. The traditional financial space is a dinosaur. It's just a matter of time before it's gone because it can do not a fraction of what DeFi can do. And flash loans are amazing in that you have no need to ask any permission from anyone to borrow money. As long as your venture is successful and as long as it can be executed in one comprehensive uh, set of steps, you get the money. Because there are these decentralized liquidity pools you can borrow from. And, uh, you know, like if you want to do arbitrage across two exchanges and you see an opportunity, you can borrow the money to buy low, sell high, pocket the difference. And and alone. Talk about the network effect. And I'm going to say from the standpoint that, you know, telephones, when they were released and, and it took so long for telephones to, to move, make their way across the country and then televisions and then cell phones and then the internet. And I know yeah. you went to a conference just last week and you and I were chatting and catching up on that. You mentioned even a reference to the network effect currently observed globally as it relates to crypto. Can you speak to that and kind of what your, your thoughts are around that at the, the rate or speed of change? Yeah. Um, what actually came up in, at the crypto conference um, from a venture capitalist slash hedge fund manager who spoke, um, they said that the rate of growth of um, innovation on the internet uh, when the internet first started and is one ninth of what we see in the crypto space. Crypto development innovation is going nine times faster than innovation on the internet. That's number one. So it's exploding exponentially of course but nine times more exponentially than 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 the internet did so what what's going to happen what's the long you know there's a the question here from it? taylor he says uh i'm actually going to put it on the screen uh and i'll i'll put uh, he says i'd love to hear theo's thoughts on the latest bull run we'll get to that but he says, uh, how long does he see it last? Actually, you know what? It was maybe a different question. I know I scanned it over here. But Taylor asked a question, which is essentially, look forward. Where is this going? Okay. So there is a concept 
um, that's well known uh, that is called uh, infrastructure inversion. As an example, when the internet first started coming out, and you know, to answer, to go back to your to your original comment about the telephone and the network effect, um, yes, telephone was a wonderful invention. Uh, however, when there were, was uh, only ten people or a hundred people that had a phone. It wasn't very useful, but take the phone to millions and it starts to become useful. Take it to billions and now you got something. And similarly with the internet, when it first started, very few adoption, very little adoption as it went on. You know, we heard the stories way back that, oh, the internet is only for criminals and pornographers and uh pedophiles and 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 those uh it, it's a fad it'll, it'll soon go away you know and and some of these were respected individuals who said this i mean shame on them but i don't know you know if if you're too entrenched and and so i see this in bitcoin as well and i have spoken some of my clients are hedge fund manager and i've spoken to them from years ago and you know they manage billions of dollars and i've gone to them and i said hey what about Bitcoin? And three years ago, oh, garbage. What, what are you What are you talking about? You know, that 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 that's going to zero. And and so they were so entrenched. They are so entrenched that even now they they're having trouble seeing it. There are the enlightened ones, though. You know, we've got Paul Tudor Jones uh, that brought his hedge fund on board, and he's he's got. Something like uh, I don't know uh, two billion in Bitcoin as part of his hedge fund. We, we know Michael Saylor from MicroStrategies, who's a great uh, spokesman for uh, adoption of crypto on your balance sheet uh, as a corporation. He's done extremely well. He got Bitcoin uh, not last August, to be August before uh, August twenty twenty. It, it just came out in the last week that Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, has an alloc a personal allocation in Bitcoin. He just uh, admitted that in an interview. Yeah, I mean, there's there's very little doubt left in the institutional space that Bitcoin is a tremendous um, hedge uh, with a tremendous upside uh, that uh, you would be foolish not to allocate some of your capital in. And, and, and we saw it with, with Tesla. He put 1.5 billion Bitcoin on his balance sheet, on, on Tesla's balance sheet. And so more and more, I understand that there are 6,000 companies now who have um, filed to have um, Bitcoin on their balance sheet and just waiting for approval. I understand the process takes some time. With the SEC, it can, can take up to six months. But uh, I think what we're going to start seeing is one company after another at an exponential pace adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet. And then we'll see Ethereum coming on board and, and, and so on. And we have just begun. I mean, just as a store of value, you know, Bitcoin 
is is only like a one point three trillion dollar market cap. Uh, we're somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, you know, gold is like about a ten trillion dollar market cap. I see Bitcoin surpassing gold simply because it has so many advantages over gold. It's much harder money than gold is. It's much more transferable, much more easily transferred than gold is. It is. It has so many advantages uh, over gold that the institutional investors are starting to get it, and even central banks are starting to look at it. And so uh, that's the upside. And so getting back to uh, infrastructure inversion, when the internet first came out, we all remember the dial-up modem, you know, America Online, that whistling that was going on, and then you've got mail. So that, what was that about? Well, that was because we were using voice lines to send data. And that was completely inefficient because it was incredibly slow. You know, the best you could hope for was, I don't know, 1,200 baud, maybe, you know, 3,000 if you're lucky. So what happened? Infrastructure inversion. I, I remember entire, logging into a BBS board and watching a JPEG load line by line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's all you could do if you use voice to send data. But turn that on its head, and now you have data with voice over IP on top of it, and bang, everything takes off, and we're into the megabits and gigabits. And, and so uh, this is what's happening with the entire world in money and in um, representation on, on the blockchain. For instance, um, there is no doubt in my mind that in, within the next 10 years, we're going to see everything become tokenized. Real estate will become tokenized. Insurance will become tokenized. Even the stock market will become tokenized. It's just much easier to trade and much cheaper and instantaneous. And so what happens is that you can start to do things you could never do before. Like you create an NFT that represents a property, a house, whatever. And now um, you sell the NFT and the NFT is traded for zero, no uh, middleman, no banks taking their cut, uh, no, you know, uh, no for financing, no real estate agent taking their cut. So the entire thing becomes effortless, frictionless. And very efficient. And so not only that, but say that you created 100 NFTs to represent a house. And now you sold that all over the world. Anyone can buy one of those NFTs that represent one hundredth of the value of your property. And I mean, it, you can work out uh, what that means. Uh, you can buy you, a fraction you know. of a famous painting. Exactly. Exactly. 
there is, there's no limits to the imagination of what can be done. But what we're looking at is a market like a stock market, which is 125 trillion on top of a blockchain like Ethereum running on top of Ethereum, tokenized completely. We're looking at um, the currencies of the world, 100 trillion worth. Again, tokenized running on top of a blockchain. We're looking at um, insurance, a either 15 or $25 trillion space, tokenized on top of blockchain network. We're looking long-term at perhaps $300 trillion in market value of blockchain networks. Decentralized, not not. And, and I should make a distinction between what is a uh, centralized um, blockchain versus a decentralized blockchain. Now, a, a decentralized blockchain, say that um, I wished to publish a fraudulent block. And, and again, this isn't exactly how Bitcoin works, but it's just the analogy. Say that uh, I want, wish to publish a, a, a block that showed that um, Ron had transferred all of his Bitcoin to me. I, you know, I, I'd like nice it guy. to work in reverse. You transferred <laughs> reverse to me. <laughs> I, I bet I don't want it to be fraudulent. I want it to be real. <laughs> <laughs> so what I would do is I would pub. I would change the Bitcoin algorithm just a bit, publish a fraudulent block, and I signal to, to all the other machines in the network and say, hey, got a solution right here. And they would promptly look at it and ignore it because they'd see it's bullshit. It has nothing to do with what they're doing. It's crap. And so you're just ignored. I mean, no big deal. Everyone just goes right back to work. So if you want to publish a fraudulent uh, block, you need, because it's a consensus algorithm, you need 51% of the voting power of, of, of the network to publish your, your fraudulent block, which means you would need to go and find that kind of computational power to take on the Bitcoin network. It's unattainable. And as I, unattainable, exactly. And so it ain't happening. It ain't happening. The only way you can shut down the Bitcoin network is shut off the internet. And if you shut off the internet, we have much bigger problems than the- So ver you know, the verse a centralized blockchain. So you were contrasting. So you just described a decentralized <coughs> blockchain. Compare right. that to yeah. a centralized blockchain. So I, I don't know if I can swear on this channel. Well, we've already, it, it's all right. It's my show. We, we <laughs> Everything goes. <laughs> okay. So uh, a centralized blockchain is a joke. It's a joke simply because um, you have got a one authority or a, a few, a handful that can create blocks and they can change them at will. And you don't need to use a blockchain. You can just use a database and you know, screw around with your own database. But the point is, if you want to look cool 
and you want to look like you're with the times, you, you might say, okay, uh, yeah, as a central bank, I am issuing a central bank digital currency. And see, here it is. Here are the wallets. Uh, here are the accounts. And everyone's got a bank with us. And now your bank, your account exists on some uh, central ledger. Well, the problem with that is that uh, if someone in authority gets pissed off with you individually because you said something or you did something that they didn't agree with, it's entirely possible that they can just freeze your funds. Now you cannot transact. And so this is not possible in a decentralized way because decentralized uh, blockchains are public. No one has control over them. They're borderless. No one can stop you from sending from one country to another. They're neutral. Nobody cares who sends what to whom. And they're censorship resistant because, you know, you can't say, ah, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't, you can't send money to that person because they live in that particular country. And we don't have good relations with that country right now. So no money going there, you know. So all that bullshit is bypassed. So it becomes very difficult for uh, authorities to control um, what you do with your own money. It, it's it's a bit like cash. Theo? Yeah. I have yeah. rapid fire. I'm mindful of time. We're already at our record for length of time on a show, but I have a bunch oh. of topics that I still want you to address. <laughs> so this show is going to go a little long, folks. Uh, so bear with bear with us. But do you mind? Uh, and, and we'll try in a lightning round. Taylor supplied us with a bunch of questions. And I'd love to just, you know, give your 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 replies here. I'll put them on the screen. One by one. Uh, what are your thoughts on the latest bull run? Uh, all jokes aside, right today, right now, it is all-time highs for Bitcoin and Ethereum. How long do you think this lasts? Uh, and uh, what what is your price prediction? And I'll, I'll lead the witness here for this uh, cycle. And for those listeners, you're going to have to study up. What does that mean, a Bitcoin cycle? Uh, what's your prediction for a, a Bitcoin top for this cycle? Um, hard to say. Um, hard to say. There are a number of predictions in. Um, JP Morgan Chase is, uh, as of last week, is calling for a $149,000 top for Bitcoin. Um, the, the stock to flow model, which we haven't covered, um, which has been very accurate in the past, is calling for 200, 220. Um, we don't know, uh, how long I mean, it's, it's impossible to call tops. Um, but I expect, and this is my own personal opinion. I expect at least a hundred thousand at, at the top. And then when, um, well, I would, we are at the moment in massive supply shock. There is no Bitcoin to buy. None. Institutional investors want Bitcoin like crazy, but there's none available to buy. This is what's driving the price. And so 
how long will this 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 go on this this run this uh, this particular bull run uh, I would say at the very least and until the end of this year and quite possibly end of q1 next year is when I would be looking to take profits and uh, and sell at least some of my Bitcoin and some of my Ethereum. All right. I'm going to go so, to the, the next question here just to try to get knocked through some of them. Would also love to hear about some altcoins that he thinks is particularly interesting. We didn't really get into much altcoins. Well, we're clearly going to have to do another show, Theo, uh, to get, there, there's, you know, sure. volumes of information to still cover. But uh, I've heard good things about Matic and the graph in particular. And, you know, for the audience to know, there's like 10,000 plus altcoins out there. There's uh, many, many thousands. Uh, any any high-level thoughts on that? Yeah, there, there are a lot of um, cryptocurrencies out there. And beware, 99.9% of them are crap. They are absolute garbage. Do not touch them with a 10-foot pole. Now, the projects, it's very difficult to, to know what projects um, to buy and which to avoid. Uh, you have to do a lot of due diligence. And you, you have, there's, a, there's a learning curve involved in crypto. Um, but right off the top of my head, I would say that good projects that I've looked at um, uh, the founder, the co-founder of Ethereum, Gavin Woods, left Ethereum after he created it and went and started a pro a, 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 another blockchain called Polkadot. Polkadot should be huge. I think it's undervalued at the moment, not financial advice, but go research it. Um, Cardano, Charles Hoskinson, the, the other, the third member of the three musketeers of Ethereum, went and formed Cardano. Cardano is important because even though it's a slow developer, it uses functional programming. And functional programming, the actual programming language is called Haskell. The, the functional programming is such that you can prove mathematically that your algorithm is correct, has no bugs in it. And so it's very important when you're creating smart contracts because as we know, some years back, Someone created, uh, Parity created uh, a, 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 a bunch of smart contracts to the tune of $140 million that uh, got hacked. The money was lost uh, forever. And so uh, it's very important to be able to prove that you got no bugs in your code. And that's why uh, Cardano is good. Uh, Polygon, Chainlink, uh, Algorand, Tether. Oh, never mind. Take out Tether. That's, <laughs> Delete Tether. <laughs> <laughs> Delete Tether. That, that's a stable coin. You, don't touch that. Um, and, and, and then, I don't know, Avalanche, Elrond, Theta, Solana, Terra, Terra, not Tether. Uh, yeah, and as I said, Chainlink, Algorand, these are all good projects. Look at them. Love it. You gave uh, some gold there. I know people are going to be rewinding and researching that uh, for sure. Uh, question here on the metaverse. Uh, what's cryptocurrency's role on the metaverse? We all heard that Facebook just changed the parent company to meta. Facebook clearly sees a big future in the metaverse. 
what is the the role of of crypto in that space? Well, this is where the metaverse is going to live. You know, we have um, we have projects like um, uh, uh, Sandbox and Decentraland, where you can actually buy. Um, uh, virtual land on these projects and build um, virtual worlds within them. Uh, gaming can be added to it. You can go from, from, from one space in the metaverse to the next. Um, it, it's wide open. Ready Player um, One, is this a real thing? For those that are listening, this is a great book and a, a movie by Steven Spielberg, Ready Player One. Is that what we're talking about? We're talking about that. But we're also talking about how to um, how to monetize it so that you be, you come out a winner rather than giving all your money to Zuckerberg, where you're not the product, but you are actually making money off of off of the product, and it it it's phenomenal uh, where this can go. Have a look at a game called Axie Infinity. This is uh, 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 a play-to-earn game where you earn Axie tokens. There are uh, countries like the Philippines where people just play this game all day because they can make like 30 bucks a day doing it. And 30 bucks is a lot of money in the Philippines on, on a daily basis. Axie Infinity is worth uh, $9 billion. Ubisoft, which is uh, a very large uh, video game company, is worth $7 billion. One game is worth more than the entire company. And, you know, uh, Electronic Arts, that's worth $40 billion, market cap. And one game is almost 10, one quarter of, of Electronic Arts. So this is huge. Games created on blockchain in the metaverse, but running on top of blockchains, decentralized, tons of money, all for us, the creators. All right. I've got to ask this coin. I'm not, I promise I won't make this the last question because we can't end on meme coins, but <laughs> all the dog coins out there, Dogecoin, Shiba, and, and all the different parodies out there. Uh, how do you feel about these types of coins and their role with the future of crypto? Very sad. This is where four-letter words are allowed, Theo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. These are shit coins, okay? I'll tell you why. Because take a look at Doge. Doge does nothing. It's a joke. It was a joke from the beginning. There's no development on Doge. Elon Musk took it and started tweeting about it for fun and, you know, great. So all of these people, institutional investors would not touch this shit with a 10-foot pole. But retail investors, oh, they all pile in. Because what? Because Elon Musk is tweeting about it. Give me a break. This shit always happens at every bull run. And I've seen it before. Um, with ICOs during the last one, yep. but crash like crazy as soon as the bull run is over. They'll go, they lose 99% of their value. So if you're going to get in, 
make sure you get out before the shit hits the fan. Because intrinsically, these are valueless projects. They got nothing. They have nothing to offer. There's no use case, right? And the only thing they have is uh, a meme coin and viral marketing. But it's crap otherwise. I agree. I want to give a shout out. Wes uh, made a post here. He said, uh, this was a great podcast that covered many topics, including crypto, NFTs, Web3. And he's referring to the Tim Ferriss, Naval Ravikant, and Chris Dixon show. Uh, I agree. I listened to that show, Wes. And I, I think I even shared that uh, with Taylor and uh, a few other people. I thought that was a, a great, it's like two and a half hours, uh, but it, it was a, a fantastic show. Um, Let's close on this, Theo. Where do you go to consume your knowledge and to kind of learn? Uh, maybe it's a two-part question. Where do you go to learn uh, about uh, the, the crypto world? And where would you advise those that are listening that maybe are a little newer to the space? This is all maybe a little intimidating. They, they know it's a thing, but they don't quite fully understand it yet. What would you advise that they do? So where do you go to learn? And then where would you advise newbies that are listening where they should go to learn? Okay, so here's the thing. Crypto, steep learning curve. You spend an hour, uh, 100 hours studying crypto, you're now dangerous. You spend 1,000 hours studying crypto, you're just starting to get it. 10,000 hours studying crypto, you're starting to just master it. I have been in the space for a decade. I have done over 10,000 hours of research, and there's a ton of stuff I still don't know. And so it's very difficult. You got to spend, you got to do your due diligence. You got to consume um, uh, crypto education as, as quickly as you can. Um, I would point you towards um, uh, Coin Bureau. Coin Bureau, I find, uh, is brilliant with his uh, educational platform. Um, his, his name is Guy. He's a British guy, but he's very good at, at um, analysis and showing you. Uh, and, and he's got hundreds. He does a video every day. So he's got hundreds of videos. I, I would, uh, hands down, um, advise him above anyone else I can think of in the space. Uh, I certainly have learned a lot from him. Uh, he's no nonsense and he, he understands. He's smart. So <clears throat> there's, there's him. And then once you start to understand, uh, you know, go to, uh, Pompliano's, uh, uh, podcast, Anthony Pompliano's. If you can listen to anything you can find by Andreas Antonopoulos, he is the evangelist in Bitcoin education. He is absolutely brilliant. He actually uh, has been invited by senators and uh, he spoke to other Parliament in Canada. It's how Canada ended up getting a uh, Bitcoin ETF approved before the United States. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's uh, very knowledgeable and uh, brilliant in, in his delivery. So I recommend him highly. Theo, what is, uh, what's the future of your business, Prometheus Systems? 
Sounds like uh, maybe you don't have to continue being an integrator much longer. Yeah, I think this is my last year. I mean, I, I'm right now I'm just doing it for fun. I'm, I'm going to hand it off to the younger guys uh, on my team, let them run with it. And uh, I'm going to uh, go out to pasture. Cru- cruise off into the sunset? <laughs> I actually, um, I'm, I have a house in Chile that I'm thinking of going to, or um, I have land in Costa Rica that I'm thinking about building a house. Um, I'm also going to build a house on the beach in the Bahamas on one of the islands. So it'll be between those three locations that you'll find me. But I'll be I'll be either in the mountains or on the beach. Theo, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your knowledge. And uh, this has been an, an awesome show, 193. Our audience that is watching or listening and they want to learn more about uh, you or get in touch with you, perhaps, any recommended uh, communication methods? How could they reach you? Well, you know, I'm like a a very private guy. I've been asked to, you know, start a podcast. I've never done it. Um, I I'm on radio all the time. I've even, you know, I've even been invited to churches to give sermons on Bitcoin. Wow. Even when it was back at twenty five hundred, they they asked me to come talk to them about Bitcoin. You imagine. Bitcoin as a, as, as a sermon, right? Wow. So I'm really, truly an evangelist uh, in the space. I mean, you can see from my teacher. Oh, right? yeah, look at that. That's cool. <laughs> right? So uh, anyway, email me. All right. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll supply an email down in the, the show notes. So for our, do, do you want to describe what that email is or do we want to just supply that afterwards? Uh, make it Theo Savusis, all one word at hotmail.com. There you go. Theo, thank you for, for being generous with your time and your knowledge and, and coming on the show. It's been a blast having you on. Thank you, Ron. It was, uh, it was great talking with you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Automation Unplugged. For a full transcript of this show and all previous shows, head over to our website at onefirefly.com forward slash AU. There you'll find links to all transcripts, show notes, Facebook Live recordings, and resources mentioned during the show. If you enjoyed this episode and like to hear more, follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please follow us on social media. We are at One Firefly LLC on all platforms. Don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Automation Unplugged as we dive deeper into technology trends and the fascinating people that make up the custom integration industry. Bye for now.